Emily and I like to play lighthearted games. I know some people like things like Settlers of Catan or really strategic board games. Uh, we've, never really, we've never really been into that. We like games that don't take five hours to learn or hours to complete. The sort of games that you can play in 15 or 20 minutes with friends after dinner. We have a, one game in particular that we love. It's called Codenames. It's one of our favorites. It's all about word association. One person says a clue and a number, and the others have to guess which, uh, which words are connected to it on the table. Sometimes words just go together. Feet and shoes, water and swim. Well, for most people, when I say the word Samaritan, what is the first word that you think of? You think of the word good. Immediately, a good Samaritan pops into mind. A person who helps another person that they didn't know. There are even huge organizations named after good Samaritans. And if you don't read the Bible very much, or if you're new to church, you might think that Samaritans must have been a pretty noble group of people. But of course, nothing could be further from the truth. If we were to play a word association game with Jesus' own friends and contemporaries, the words that they would have picked out to describe Samaritans might have been something closer to unclean, unfaithful, polluted, traitors, half-breeds, heretics. Today we find ourselves uh, in the book of Luke. We've been in Mark for a while, but we're going into Luke for just this Sunday. Jesus has had a powerful teaching and healing ministry following Luke's account of how God was preparing the world to be radically changed by his life, death, and resurrection. In Luke 1, Mary sings a song about how God was lifting up the lowly and the poor and humbling the proud and powerful. And Jesus, in his ministry, has been bringing that to life through his calling of a ragtag group of uneducated disciples, through his teaching, and even through raising people from the dead. Just before this story in chapter 9, things really start to change in the book of Luke. Two things happen. First, Peter declares that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and Jesus tells him uh, that's why he's going to, to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Peter declares him the Christ, and Jesus said, yeah, that's right, that's why we're going to my crucifixion. But the second thing is Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and he is transfigured before them, and they can see ever so briefly Jesus' true identity when they had not had eyes to see it before. And it happens while he is discussing what? His upcoming suffering and death with Moses and Elijah. And once this happens, the text says that Jesus sets his face like flint to Jerusalem, that he, he turns his face to Jerusalem. And the next nine chapters of the book are this long travel narrative, this journey toward the Passover where he will fulfill the Father's will. And on this journey to Jerusalem, the Lord is preparing for the kingdom to arrive. He is taking the hard soil of the people's hearts of the nation and breaking it up that it can be planted properly. And that's 
exactly where we find ourselves in chapter 10, on the beginning of this long travel narrative. The disciples were out, sent out two by two and have been stirring things up. More and more people are flocking to Jesus and are asking, what is the nature of this strange kingdom that he is teaching all about? And all of this attention, all of this hubbub makes religious people, religious leaders rather, very nervous. And they continue to challenge and test and clash with him at each and every step along the way as he walks to the cross. And that's how Luke sets the stage for this famous scene. A lawyer gets up and tests Jesus, asking him, what should I do? to inherit eternal life. Now, this isn't some corporate lawyer. This is not a guy who makes his money by helping with mergers and acquisitions, right? He isn't a secular legal professional. He is an expert in Torah, Jewish law, and would likely have been um, employed by the temple uh, for his skills. He was an educated member of the Jewish religious elite. So Jesus asked, what does the law say? You're the lawyer, you tell me. And his answer should sound familiar to us. It's the right one. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Which is what we say every service. Um, It's how Jesus summarizes the law. This is exactly what Jesus teaches. You have the answer correctly, the Lord tells him. Do this, and you will live. But then we remember that he's a lawyer. (laughs) Ah, ah, Jesus. But you see, who is my neighbor? Now in Israel at this time, this was a hotly debated issue. Who counts as a neighbor? Only members of the Jewish community? How about immigrants who live according to the Jewish law? Do the occupying Romans count as our neighbors? Do our enemies? And so Jesus, as he so often does, answers with a story, a parable. And the parable opens on a certain man. No no indication of who he is or where he is from or what he's doing, just a person who is going to Jerusalem from Jericho and is robbed and left half dead on the side of the road. Now, this is not an uncommon thing. Jerusalem was way up in the hills, way above sea level, and Jericho is thousand feet below sea level. And the road that goes from here to there was a very dangerous place. And of course, the the priest comes, he sees the man, and he passes him. And the Levite comes and he sees him and he passes him by. But the unclean Jewish half-breed Samaritan, presumably a merchant, stops and shows open-ended compassion for the man. He puts himself at risk and saves the certain man from death. Which one, Jesus asks, is the man's neighbor? The one who shows mercy, the lawyer responds. Go 
and do likewise. Now Jesus turns the table on this lawyer and he asks who acts like a neighbor rather than who counts as your neighbor. You got the answer to the question right, but the lawyer has been using the law rather than marked and being set apart by the law. The law was always meant to mark the people of God as belonging to the Lord, but it had become a way for Israel to mark others as beneath them. It had been twisted and distorted. And this story about a Samaritan fulfilling the law better than a priest than a Levite coming from the temple is scandalous and offensive and challenging to the whole system. What defines a good neighbor? Mercy. Or to go back on the lawyer's own words, love. Love first of God and then of those who the Lord puts in our path. Today, I think we make two big mistakes. We make two big mistakes when we read this story. First, we take it out of context. And two, and most importantly, we identify with the wrong character first. First, the problem with context. Parables, in particular, can be so easy to treat as these little isolated stories that are not linked to the whole rest of the book. But this story, just like all the stories, are part of this overarching thing that God is doing the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus that we find in each of the Gospels. And this one big book about a broken, sinful, hurting world, which is rescued and delivered by the Lord himself, being subjected to our violence and overcoming it with love, that, that is the context of the book of Luke. That's the story Jesus is taking this long road on on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus is the one who is treated like the outcast, who loves those who are forgotten and abused. And that, that story of Jesus is the ultimate context of this parable. This Samaritan's mercy, this Samaritan's love is a little version of the love of God embodied in Jesus. And when we start to read the parable in this light, thinking of him like Jesus, in the context of the greater gospel, something else changes. Who we try to be in the story. When we hear parables like this, and we think of them in isolation, we're always trying to put ourselves in the story. Who am I supposed to be in this account, right? Who am I? Do I feel racked with guilt because I'm someone who passed a homeless man on the street? Do we feel self-righteous, assuring ourselves that we are not like those self-righteous religious leaders? Maybe a little bit of both. Well, that's, that's the problem, though, is that that's not where any of us should find ourselves in the story, either in the priest or Levite or in the Good Samaritan, at least not at first. There is something deeper that Jesus wants us to see. We are neither the Good Samaritan or the priest or Levite until we have first been the person in the ditch. The first place that we need to find ourselves is broken and struggling 
and dependent on the mercy of God. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, we find unlikely heroes, little children, Samaritans, repentant tax collectors who climb trees, Gentiles, and blind beggars. And what is the one thing that they all have in common in the book of Luke? They recognize their radical need for grace. They know that they, in their gut, that they are way beyond help. That if something is going to happen for them, it is going to be a miracle. They need the Lord's help, and they'll do anything it takes to get it. Making a fool of themselves like Zacchaeus climbing a tree or running to Jesus in a crowd and calling out when they hear him passing by, they are painfully aware that the religious system, which assures us to be good, has passed them by and they are in need of a dramatic rescue. They know that they are the person in the ditch and they need someone to carry them to safety, to bind up their wounds and pay the innkeeper with money that they don't have and to give them oil and wine, which they have no access to. Those are the heroes of Luke's gospel. The self-righteous priest and Levite come from a focus on the self, on their own careful observance of the law, their own careful and fastidious care for all the little rules they build around the law to make it even harder to understand and observe. They, were, they are born Jews, after all. Their blood makes them righteous. But if we come to this parable as just another moral story of how to be good, we are dramatically missing the person telling the story. We are making the same mistake as the lawyer who challenged Jesus. We are not the ones with the oil and the wine and the mercy and the money to pay the innkeeper. If we are really honest with ourselves, we are all so fundamentally broken and dependent on mercy and love that we have not earned. And at the end of this long journey to Jerusalem, Nine chapters later, in chapter 18, Luke tells an almost identical story to this one. A well-respected person comes up to Jesus, asks how he can inherit eternal life. Jesus points him to the law, and then Jesus asks him to sell everything that he has, and the man walks away in sadness. The disciples throw up their hands. They say, Lord, if rich people can't inherit the kingdom of heaven, who can? To which Jesus says, What is impossible for man is possible for God. What is impossible for man is possible for God. Jesus' eternal life is not about racking up brownie points with God, about doing enough to earn it. It's about being rescued. It's about recognizing that it is impossible with man, but that with God, All things are possible. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are in the ditch. And yet, the Lord is the one who came to find us in that ditch and carry us when we are too weak to walk. 
And when we see ourselves first as the man in the ditch, then we are able to understand ourselves. When we understand ourselves first as people who are in desperate need of mercy and compassion and deliverance of God, the whole world looks different. Because Jesus has pulled us up from the side of the road. Because in Christ, we are a new creation. Because in spite of being dependent and broken and an absolute train wreck, the Lord has loved us like a father who loves his children. And he takes on our suffering and death so that we might in turn taste the joy of his spirit and life. That is the first place we find ourselves in the story. But it's also not the last place we find ourselves in the story. Because when, in our bones, we know that love and mercy and deliverance shown to us in the person of Jesus, something else happens. We become contagious. Contagious with the love of God and neighbor. We are people who act not out of moral obligation or fastidious study of the law, out of moral duty or self-righteousness, but out of love. Love that we now belong to. Love that now marks us like a family trait. Love which is contagious and makes us drawn to those who were just like us, broken. Good works of compassion and mercy are not a way that we earn our salvation. They are the enjoyment of our salvation. They're the thing we get to enjoy. Mercy and love are not the means by which we get someplace. They're the arrival there. They are the fruit of abiding in Jesus. And you see this all over the Gospel of Luke with the other wayward members that Jesus calls to his tribe, right? Zacchaeus comes down out of the tree. What's the first thing he does? Jesus only invites him to dinner. And, and the next thing that happens is he's giving away all the money which he had ill-gotten. Who is a good neighbor? The one who first has been rescued and redeemed. That is the truth of the gospel, friends. And it is good 